Zechariah chapter 9. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king of Gaza, the king shall perish from Gaza, Ashkelon shall be uninhabited, a mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord our God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. And that is the reading of God's word. Let's ask him to bless it to us now. 
Father, we do pray that you'll bless your word to us, bless the ministry of the word, and use it to work out your purposes, wield it, though it is a, a weak means and uh, implemented by a weak servant. Show your power in weakness, we pray, uh, even in our very midst tonight, as your word goes forth, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So the, uh, that first hymn that we sang during the hymn sing that Abby picked for us, it's really a, a Palm Sunday hymn, and it's based on uh, these verses 9 and 10 in chapter 9. It's about the Lord entering triumphantly into Jerusalem and the children singing Hosanna. And uh, that was the fulfillment of what we read in this passage in Zechariah tonight. And as Pastor Mark mentioned this morning in his sermon, um, the whole Bible is all about Jesus. And um, sometimes it's not quite so easy to see that. There are some passages of Scripture that's more difficult than others to see uh, what it says about Jesus, how it points to Jesus, but it all does. And once in a while, we get these, these brilliant glimpses of Jesus. And I think this text tonight, particularly verses 9 and 10, are an example of that. It kind of reminds me of, of, uh, of Superman yeah, because uh, when he's not out saving lives right and, and saving the world and doing heroic exploits he's mild-mannered Clark Kent right and he wears his suit and the tie and the glasses and the hat and stuff but you've seen posters right with um, Clark Kent and he's got his hat on he's wearing his glasses still but he's pulling his shirt open and even though he looks like Clark Kent mostly you see that S on his chest and you know that's Superman. He's the hero. Well, in this passage in Zechariah, it's one of those places in the Old Testament where, in a sense, our Savior kind of pulls open the shirt and lets us see that it's Him, that He's there. The whole Bible is about Jesus Christ, just as Pastor Mark told us this morning. And sometimes, like in this place, we get these unmistakable views these unmistakable glimpses that, yes, I know this is about my Messiah. I know this is about my Savior, the one who came to live and to die for me. But the thing is, examples like Zechariah 9.9 also serve to remind us that everything else in the passage is about Jesus too. It's like that pulling back of the shirt. He's in there. He's there. It's Him. And this, this whole chapter, this whole book of prophecy, this whole Bible is about Jesus. And let's remember that as we, as we go through this chapter and consider it together. Before we really start to get into it, I will make this uh, observation and, and bring this to your attention. Now that we've come to the ninth chapter of Zechariah, it is commonly known amongst Bible scholars that these remaining chapters, and it goes all the way to uh, 14. So these next six chapters uh, contain a, uh, an unusually uh, great number of obscure Hebrew words, uh, obscure Hebrew phrases. And of course, uh, when I stand up to read the text, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you happen to be looking at a different version as you follow along, that's fine. Just be aware that you may notice 
a, a larger number of differences in translation. And that's because we're, we're dealing with a language that's 4,000 years old. And there's just simply some things that we're not totally sure what they mean or, or how they should best be translated. Um, so your versions uh, may vary if you're using something other than the English Standard Version, and that's why. Uh, there are some obscure things in the Hebrew of Zechariah chapters 9 through 14. But here's one thing we can be sure of. No matter what version you're reading, uh, no matter how obscure the Hebrew may be from one verse to another, this is what Zechariah 9 is about. It tells us that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's what this chapter is about. It exalts our Savior, Jesus Christ, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And because Christ is our King and our Lord, this passage shows us that, first of all, Christ conquers his enemies. Secondly, Christ inherits the nations. And finally, Christ redeems his people. And those are the three points we'll look at in our time together tonight. So to begin with, Christ conquers his enemy. The text begins, this chapter begins with these words. The oracle of the word of the Lord. And it says the oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach. Now before we get into who or what Hadrach is, just uh, the oracle, the word oracle is, um, it's uh, sometimes translated burden. It's a message from God. It's a prophecy. And as you will see throughout Scripture, if the oracle of the Lord is against someone, that is never a good thing. That's bad news if the oracle of the Lord is against you. It doesn't, well, it doesn't end well for the object of the oracle, in other words. Think, for example, of Balaam. Remember, uh, the Balak, the king of Moab, called for Balaam and he hired him to curse Israel. And Balaam had already committed to speak only what the Lord said to him. And so therefore, no matter how much money Balak gave him, no matter how many sacrifices Balak made, Balaam was unable to curse Israel. Um, Balak wanted Balaam to curse Israel, and one of Balaam's final oracles was about this, this scepter that was going to rise out of Jacob, and it was going to crush the forehead of Moab. That's, not the la that's the last thing Balak wanted to hear. But when the oracle of the Lord is against you, things end badly. Now, there are oracles that are favorable, and we encounter a few of those in Scripture too. But the interesting thing about most prophecies uh, that self-identify as oracles is that even the good that's going to come from that oracle uh, usually includes elements of some kind of stress. Oracles usually include, even if they're good oracles in the end, they include some kind of tribulation that lies between the recipient of the oracle and whatever blessing is going to come. <clears throat> 
But Zechariah 9 begins with this oracle against the enemies of God. And it starts with enemies that are up in the north. Uh, you have these place references, and some of them are familiar, some names that you've probably heard before. Tyre, Sidon, those are uh, well-known city-states that were on the northern uh, edges of Palestine at some points in the history of Israel in their, in their, uh, in their golden years, in the later reign of David and then during Solomon's reign, Tyre and Sidon were actually incorporated into Israel. Um, and you know the name Damascus. Damascus is one of the most ancient cities in the world. Uh, in fact, Damascus is part of that region of the world. It was affected by these earthquakes about which we've very recently prayed. It's the capital of Syria. But then there's some other names that are less familiar, like Hadrach. Um, Hadrach is a region in northern Palestine. It's near Damascus. It's all in the same general area. Hadrach isn't mentioned anywhere else in Scripture besides here. But Hamath is. It has multiple mentions. Uh, the one that kind of uh, caught my attention most is that uh, it, was, it was in Hamath that when King Zedekiah fled, he's trying to get away after the, the Babylonians broke through the wall of uh, Jerusalem. Uh, Zedekiah fled, uh, but the forces of uh, the king of Babylon overtook him in the plains and they brought him to Hamath. And it was in Hamath that Nebuchadnezzar slaughtered Zedekiah's sons and then put out his eyes. But he's speaking, the prophet is, this oracle is speaking uh, to the people groups and to the, uh, the cities in this region up to the north of Israel. And it makes note of their security, their wealth, their skill. Tyre has built herself a rampart. They're well secured, well defended. They'd heaped up silver like dust fine gold like the mud of the streets. You know, that's almost Solomonic in its, uh, in its description of the wealth of these cities. Because remember Solomon, in, in his days, there was so much gold in Israel that silver wasn't even considered valuable. And then here you have Tyre apparently uh, amassing wealth of a, uh, in, in similar measure. And then it speaks of wisdom. And I think... Uh, uh, when it speaks of wisdom in reference to Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, as it says in verse 2, that's not talking about the sort of God-fearing kind of wisdom, not the wisdom um, of, of someone who, who loves God, not the kind of wisdom that's extolled in the book of Proverbs, but here the term probably just more refers to skill. They were a skillful people. They were skillful seafarers, which comes out in our text too. They were they were lords of the sea, and um, despite all those things, despite their wealth, despite their skill, despite their, this, their, their sense of security, the Lord God is going to plunder and devastate them all, as it says in verse 4. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. And as a result of God dealing in that way with those countries in the north, it's going to strike fear in the hearts of God's enemies to the south. 
which is what we see in verses 5 and 6. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. And it goes on to mention several cities. Cities in the territory of the Philistines. Now, uh, when Philistia was a significant world power, uh, it was centered around five major cities. Four of them are mentioned here. You've got Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and um, Ashdod. Gath, which you remember maybe uh, is where the giant Goliath came from, Goliath of Gath, uh, isn't even mentioned here, which leads us to believe that by this time Gath had sort of faded out of existence, faded into obscurity. But you have these four major Philistine cities mentioned here. And God says he's going to cut off their pride. Now, in a sense, he had done that to some extent already because by the days of Zechariah, the Philistines weren't really a significant uh, force in the world. They weren't, they weren't a thing, really. But uh, throughout the history of Israel, you know, they, they had been the thorn in the side of the Israelites all the way from back in the days of the judges. Uh, and then again, you know, David had war with the Philistines. By the days of Solomon, uh, they, all of Israel's enemies had been subdued. But then once Solomon died and the kingdom divided, then along come the Philistines again, causing trouble. They were perennial enemies of the Israelites. So here, they might just be being used representatively as enemies of God, enemies of God's people. And God says he's going to ravage the cities of the Philistines. He's going to conquer his enemies, in other words. And that theme of overwhelming victory carries on throughout this, the rest of this chapter, even though we, we turn our attention to other uh, themes and points. Uh, we're continued, we, we continue to see God declaring victory over and uh, declaring war upon and his intention to destroy all of his enemies. So look at verse 13 again. I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. So you have this reference to Greece. In, in, Hebrew, in the Hebrew, the, the word is Yavan. It's a it's an ancient word used for the, the people groups in that region now known as Greece. Um, and there are uh, liberal scholars, by the way, who, who argue that, okay, well, this mention of Greece here in Zechariah's prophecy indicates that this wasn't really written by Zechariah. It wasn't written in his day. It must, have, it must be dated much, much later because the Greek empire uh, wasn't uh, significant. It, wasn't, it didn't exist, you know. Uh, um, but it's not necessary to, to dismiss that in that way. And of course, certainly we uh, should always be leery of anything the liberal scholars say. But um, the Greek city-states by Zechariah's day were already uh, a significant force. They were already gaining importance. They were already a menace to the Persian Empire. And it's just a few short decades from the time Zechariah wrote this prophecy that the the uh, Greco-Persian wars began, and for 50 years the Greeks and the Persians are at war. The Battle of Thermopylae is in the midst of all that. But um, so yeah, the Greeks were there. As a matter of fact, if you remember back when we were going through Joel, uh, 
Joel, in chapter 4 of his prophecy, verse 6, did I get that right? Um, He makes mention of the Philistines selling the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks, selling them into slavery. So they were there. They were a menace already. So there's no issue here with Zechariah referring to Greece. But what's most important is that throughout this passage, we see God portrayed as a warrior king, a warrior king, a warrior God who conquers his enemy. Look at verses 14 and 15 once more. Then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. So the bottom line there is that the Lord our God is in the process of subduing and conquering his enemies all around, to the north, to the south, everywhere you look, God is conquering his enemies. And that's the work of Christ our Savior because one of the offices that he fulfills as our Redeemer is the office of King. And you may be familiar with those words of the Shorter Catechism. How doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. That's what our king does. That's what Zechariah is saying he does. Christ conquers his enemies. But Christ also inherits the nations. Now, it's, it's our knowledge of the New Testament, our knowledge of the Gospels, and of, of Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem that uh, makes this passage from Zechariah familiar to us. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a donkey. And so this passage calls for rejoicing, doesn't it? Calls for celebration. Rejoice. Shout aloud, it says. This is good news. This is joyful news that your king is coming. And he comes with a proclamation of peace. If you look back at verse 8, I will encamp at my house as a guard so that no one shall march to and fro. In other words, there won't be troops, there won't be soldiers, there won't be invaders marching about in Jerusalem or among the people of God. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes, God says. He's proclaimed peace. And you see that in the fact that this king who's coming is mounted not on a war horse, but on a donkey. Now, try to put yourself in the place of someone hearing Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah's day. Because in Zechariah's day, Israel had been without a king already for 70 years. And unless you want to count some of the, uh, some of the so-called kings that they installed uh, in the intertestamental period who really weren't officially kings, uh, 
Israel never really had a king again. From the time that Jerusalem fell in 586 B.C., no king on earth ever reigned over Israel again. Still hasn't. Not over Israel as a, as a world power. <clears throat> but, the, but Zechariah is proclaiming, your king is coming. He's coming. And he describes how he's going to come. He's going to come on a donkey, he's going to be righteous. He comes having salvation. And see, that too is like the, the pulling back of the shirt because why did Joseph get the command from the angel to name his son Jesus? Call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. And that Hebrew word for salvation is is related to the name Yeshua, the name Jesus, because he has salvation. He brings salvation. And this righteous one, this one that has salvation, he's coming not with a sword, not riding on a war horse, but he's coming humble, mounted on a donkey. And it reminds me of that statement of Jesus, that self-description one of the few that he gives, the one that was sort of the basis for that little book that was uh, uh, promoted to you some time ago, gentle and lowly. Because Jesus says, that's what I am. He says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So these are the attributes of this king who's coming. That's the kind of king to expect, Zechariah says. He speaks in verse 10a that this king is going to cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow. In other words, he's going, to, he's going to cut off those implements of war that were going to be used against his people. He's going to bring peace. And the result of all this will be the universal rule of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what Verse 10 tells us about at the end there. He, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's 
language that we're familiar with. You know, even in America, we've got the Atlantic Ocean on one side and the Pacific Ocean on the other side, and so in our songs we sing about from sea to shining sea, right? Well, similar expression was used in the ancient world, and you had the, the Mediterranean Sea to the west, and you had uh, bodies of water down to the south and the east, and from sea to sea, this king is going to reign. It's a way of saying the whole world. From the river, the Euphrates, which would have been the, the very northernmost limits of civilization, uh, and on down to, where does it say? From the river to the ends of the earth. It all verses 8 and 9 ask of me this is the father speaking to his anointed this is God speaking to his anointed ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel all authority Jesus said in Matthew 28 all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me And so the redemptive intent of the Father giving the nations to His Son was that He would inherit them. I'm going to have to kind of speed through the third point, but I want you to see this passage from Isaiah. Isaiah 49. Why did God give the nations to His Son? There is that reference in Psalm 2 about him uh, break th breaking them with a rod of iron. Well, and that's talking about his, his conquest of his enemies, his conquering of those who resist his rule, his authority. But this was God's redemptive purpose in giving the nations to his son. Isaiah 49, verse 6, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to where? To the ends of the earth. There you have that phrase again. Because they all, all the ends of the earth belong to Jesus, our King. He will inherit the nations. But then finally, Christ redeems his people. You see the, this redemptive intent in more detail in verses 11 and 12 of Zechariah 9 and then even more in Zechariah 9, 16 and 17. <clears throat> God remembers his covenant in verse 11. Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free. And so he's going to free the prisoners because he remembers his covenant. Uh, he's going to free them from the waterless pit. The same way he freed Jeremiah from the pit into which he was placed. The same way that although Joseph's brothers threw him into that pit. He was lifted out 
And although he may not have seen and didn't, surely didn't see God's purposes for him at first, God redeemed Joseph from the pit. He redeemed Jeremiah from the pit. The pit is an Old Testament euphemism for, the, for death, for the grave. And so this foreshadows the work of Christ, liberating us from bondage to sin and to death. Verse 16 says, on that day, and that's a forward-looking statement, of course, and it teaches us that God is going to save them. He says that in the text. And if you look at verse 16, on that day, the Lord their God will save them. Again, if you look at the Hebrew word, you can see the connection between that and the very name of Jesus himself, the name Yeshua, Joshua, salvation is of the Lord. Saved by the humble king on the donkey. And furthermore, he's going to take special care of his people. He's going to care for them like a flock. He's going to treasure his people because they'll be like shining jewels in a crown. And you see the, re- the joy of the redeemed. In verse 15, they shall drink wine and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. One commentator described this as a boisterous victory celebration. And I should point out, it says, they'll drink and roar as if drunk with wine. It's not saying that they're getting drunk. It's saying that the jubilation that they'll experience as a result of the Lord's salvation, it'll be, it'll be ecstatic. And he'll give them plentiful provision. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. And all the glory and the honor and the praise for all of it goes to the Lord and to none other. Throughout this chapter, Christ is the conqueror. Christ is the redeemer. Christ is the heir who inherits the nations. Christ is the coming king, the righteous one who has salvation. But if we put ourselves in the shoes, the sandals, try to hear this passage the way Zechariah's original audience might have or the way Jews and generations following that might have, you can easily see, can't you? If you're really honest, you can easily see how they would take a message like this one, an oracle like this one, and, and get misguided messianic expectations from it. Be looking for a king unlike the one that, that came. Christ gets all the glory. How great is his goodness. It says at the end of, or in verse 17, how great is his goodness. Christ is a friend and savior of sinners. Aren't you thankful that when Jesus Christ came the first time, he didn't come on a war horse. He came on a donkey. Humble. He came as the good shepherd to gather the flock of his people. How great is his goodness. Verse 17 also says, how great is his beauty. I think of that hymn we sing sometimes, fairest Lord Jesus. And the final verse, beautiful Savior, Lord of the nations. In Psalm 24, excuse me, 27, verse 4, the psalmist says, there's one thing I've asked of you, O God, 
that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may behold the beauty of the Lord. Do you think of the Lord Jesus as beautiful? Jesus Christ is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. So, the first of just a few brief points of application is this. Ask the Lord to show you his glory. In your prayer time, ask him to show you his glory. Ask him to show you his beauty. That's what Moses desired. Remember, Moses had been through the ringer with the people of Israel out there in the wilderness. And one time when he's communing with God, he says, Lord, show me your glory. That's what the psalmist was asking for too. I want to look upon the beauty of the Lord. Robert Murray Machane encouraged people each time they open their Bibles to read God's word to briefly precede their reading with this prayer that comes from the word. Psalm 119 verse 18. Pray, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And if you're enabled to behold wondrous things out of the law of God, out of the word of God, out of the scriptures, the wondrous things that you're going to behold all pertain to the Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful Savior we have. Second point of application, bow the knee to King Jesus now. Serve him. He came already humbly and riding on a donkey, having salvation. And that salvation that he came bringing he offers today as the one to whom all authority is given so he's seated on his ascended throne he's at the right hand of God the father he's ruling from glory and he commands all people everywhere to repent so I as his ambassador urge you to turn to him in repentance and faith and live because when he comes again he will come on a white horse, mighty in battle, to conquer all of his enemies and to break them with a rod of iron. And then it will be too late. And finally, Christ's humility reminds us that he delights to use weak things to accomplish his purposes. Our king came humble and mounted on a donkey. He uses weak things to build his church. He uses weak things to advance his kingdom. One commentator that I read this week said, the conjunction of power and weakness seen in Messiah Jesus is the pattern for Christian ministry in the power of the gospel, a treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Weak things, ordinary things, especially the means of grace. There are few things more outwardly ordinary and seemingly weak as you sitting down and opening your Bible and reading it. Or prayer. Or attending a worship service and hearing the word of God preached. But these are the very things that King Jesus uses to redeem his people. Let's pray. Father, we praise and thank you for our Lord and Savior, King Jesus, who came, who was gentle and lowly, who 
who came humble and mounted on a donkey. Lord, may we bow the knee to him. And we pray that you cause many, many others to do the same. We pray it all for his glory and for his kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.